Well, this morning uh, we've we've talked about three of the the ten things that healthy churches do, not to become healthy, but because they're healthy. Uh, and, and one of them is that we have our foundation is who? Jesus. Jesus is our foundation as a healthy church. We say that's who we're standing on and we're standing with and we're holding fast to. Then we talked about Paul's words to Timothy where he talked about the importance of a, 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 a healthy prayer life. And, and healthy churches have healthy prayer lives. We, we spend time praying individually, in groups, uh, and, and in all of the places we need to be. And then we talked about the importance of spiritual development, that question that Paul asked to the church at Corinth, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And understanding who we are. Well, this morning we're going to turn to the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews can be a, a heavy read at times. If you've ever tried to read Hebrews devotionally, you kind of go, man, wow, what's he talking about here? Uh, I think the book was written to followers of Jesus who had come out of Jewish backgrounds. So that's why he called it to the Hebrews. Uh, and they were probably dealing with doctrinal issues. And I think what he does in the book of Hebrews, I've never actually done a study of the book of Hebrews as a, as a teaching series, but what he does is talks about the marks through there of, of what healthy people do in Christ and, and healthy churches and and how they've got it sorted out. Well, in our, our passage today, if you were going to sum up this passage today, it's basically this. It's kind of a long sentence, so don't try to write it down, but here it is. Healthy churches and believers respond rightly to God's discipline, and they choose to submit to God so they grow in holiness as it's applied to their lives. Now, I was a typical teenage boy, which meant a couple of things. One is I needed a car, right? Because every teenage boy has got to have a car. Otherwise, you're not cool. And so I figured out a way to get my license when I was 15 so I could work. I was a hardship case. And probably some of you who've known me a while, you say, yeah, you're a hardship case, but that's a different issue. But I got my license at 15, and, and I had a, a little red car uh, with a stick shift because that was, I guess, cool. And... Uh, I, Dad kept telling me, he says, now you need to be careful in town especially because uh, you drive too much, too fast, you'll get stopped and they will probably want to give you a ticket. And he says, if you get a ticket, I'm not paying. It's on you. I've actually applied that to my kids. So far, they've paid none. They've been way better than their dad ever was. But anyway, over the course of a year in my little hometown, I, I got to know the police in Mansfield almost on a first name basis. Uh, they'd stop and they'd say, hey, it's you again. i go, yes, sir, it's me again. And about three-quarters of the time, they'd give me a warning. But every once in a while, they'd go ahead and give me a, a gift that I could pay. And apparently, over the course of that year, I, I had a pretty good collection to the point that I got a letter from the state of Texas telling me that they were uh, taking me to court to remove my privilege of driving. Now, that's devastating. To a 16-year-old boy, take away his life. Oh, my goodness. I said, Dad, what am I going to do? He goes, well, you're going to go to court. I said, okay. I said, you're going to be there? He goes, oh, I'll do my best to be there. I should have known. The day came. The time showed. Dad was nowhere to be found. You know, Back then, we didn't have cell phones, so I couldn't call him and ask him where he was. I couldn't live 360 him to figure out where he was coming or not. And I had to face the judge alone. You'll be happy to know that I got probation. So, yes, your pastor's been on probation before for a year. I had to drive clean. Well, it changed. Fred had improved my driving. I wouldn't say it made it good. It's better. 
there's still times I make mistakes driving, just like all we all do. But that event showed me that there's a place in our lives for what? For discipline. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate to be alive because of that discipline, probably. But I want to talk to you about three things that, that churches that are healthy do. They face discipline well. And, and, and the first thing I want you to know this is this. Discipline does this. It reveals our father-son relationship. Ladies, it's not a sexist comment. That's just that biblical description for the relationship we have with God. And what the Bible writer does here, he lays out a big idea of what discipline is in our lives. And he wants them to understand discipline is actually an integral part of a healthy relationship with the God of the universe. Now, most of you are going, uh, who likes discipline, Pastor? Nobody. i got to tell you, I didn't enjoy walking into that courtroom at, I think it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and facing the judge. That was no fun. I don't ever want to do that again. But discipline is an action that is reserved within the God-Son relationship for those who are actually in the Father-Son relationship. Now get this. Look at the passage, verse 7 through 8. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you, catch this, what? As sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we all have participated, then you are, get this, illegitimate children and not sons. The father-son relationship is 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 an important relationship in this God thing because it reveals that we are in a relationship. You're going, huh? A father-son relationship. When we're in a relationship with God, we receive discipline because we're his children. If you're not receiving discipline from the Father, that means you're not in a father-son relationship. You're somebody else. Those who are not following God don't face this kind of discipline. They face, face the wrath of God. And so I think the big idea we want to grasp here is this. One of the marks of a genuine sonship is the presence of godly discipline in our lives. Now, some of you are going, I don't like discipline. We're not talking about whether we like it or dislike it. We're talking about whether it exists or not in our lives. It's something that we, if we're going to be healthy Christians and therefore have healthy churches, we have to learn how to deal with. A true follower of God is going to face godly discipline on a regular basis. It's going to come, and it's going to come, and it's going to come again, and it's going to come again. Because God is loving us and working with us, and it reveals the validity of our relationship with God. Let me put it another way. If we're never experiencing godly discipline in our lives, we lack intimate relationship with God. Let me say that again. If we are not experiencing godly discipline as his children, it's an indicator that there may be something wrong with the God-son relationship that we have or we profess to have. When those who profess to be followers of Jesus experience his discipline, Here's the response. We ought to be grateful. You know, no kid goes, Dad, thanks for the whipping. Or, Mom, thanks for pulling out the paddle. But after it's over, what happens? We sulk and we pout and we complain, but the work in our lives has been put in motion. Y'all with me? So now, some of you may be thinking, but, but everybody goes through trials. How do we know it's not just a trial, not just a hardship, or not just a difficulty, not a difficult situation? How do we know if it's godly discipline or just a bad experience? I believe it comes down to this. It comes down to how you respond to the moment. 
how you respond. Faced with discipline as a child of God, here's what happens. The child of God says, God, I'm going to draw near to you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be in relationship with you so that you can teach me, so you can correct me, so you can lead me closer. person who doesn't know God, here's how they respond. They become bitter. They become rebellious. They become indifferent. They become angry. Maybe they try to seek their own solution. Or maybe they say, oh, it was just bad luck. It's what happens in life. Add to this, when a true child of God sins, we are always going to sense the discipline of God in our lives. You might want to call it another word, the conviction of God, the the moving of God in our life. All those are equivalents here. But I want you to understand, the true child of God senses in the midst of a struggle or sin or something like that, that God is working to bring us back to him. A lost person thinks, I got away with it. I got my way. God's discipline, his discipline comes in the face of sin. And when we experience that discipline, it reveals our relationship with God. So if you're not experiencing godly discipline, you may want to ask, do I have a God relationship in the first place? Second, Discipline then reminds us God is working for our good. We already kind of alluded to this, but let's kind of dig into it a little bit deeper. Look at verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who what? Disciplined us, and we respected them. Maybe not in the moment, but in the big picture, we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it deemed uh, seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our what? For our good, that we may share in his holiness. So he makes two points here I want you to grasp. They're kind of like sub-points. I didn't want to like do a ten-point sermon today, so I did a three-point with a bunch of small points under. So hang in there with me. There's two sub-thoughts I want you to catch here. The first one is this, two big points we need to get. Number one is if our fa- uh, human fathers who are flawed discipline, and their discipline aids in our development, and it does, how much better is God's discipline for us? How much better is it when he works in our lives? What the writer does here is kind of fascinating. He evokes the image that we have of an earthly father in contrast to our heavenly father. And regardless of your earthly father's spiritual condition, when compared to the reality of God, they don't stack up. Why? Human fathers are flawed. God is not. Human fathers make mistakes. God does not. Human fathers sin. God the Father what? Does not. So they're not exactly the same. But most human fathers, now get this, they love their children enough to do what? To try to discipline. Kids today think, oh, they're not doing it for they love me. They're doing it because they want to hurt me. They want to abuse me. They want to. No. Even flawed, lost dads are trying to take their kids into a better direction. This last Wednesday night, we had the Court of Champions event over at the at the gym, and, and I was able to counsel with uh, several kids after the service, uh, after the invitation was over. And out of the five kids that I talked with, two of them's comment was this, I don't have a dad who cares about me. And I thought to myself, oh, how sad. You know, they may not have saved daddies, but they ought to have daddies that care enough to what? Discipline them, love them, step into their lives. That's the father that God is to us. He says, I'm going to step into your lives because you need discipline. And if we don't experience it, something's wrong. Second, we have to therefore submit our lives. So when God comes into our lives with discipline, we have to say, how am I going to respond? Well, how do you respond? Well, there's two ways. One, you can say, God, I ain't listening. I'm going my own way. That's what a lot of us do. Let's be honest. 
But the better way is to say, God, I want to listen to you. I want to follow you. I want to answer. You know, you could even say yes on the outside and say no on the inside. It didn't do any good, right? Have you ever done that? Come on, be honest. You've had an argument with your spouse and you've gone, okay, great, I agree. But inside, what are you saying? Ain't going to happen. Not much relationship there. Not positive anyway. Think about the life of Job. Think about his life. Here's a guy who was doing nothing wrong, before we can tell. He was having a great life. And, and, and God allowed, well, that's a thought that you want to kind of sink your teeth into. God allowed all of that to come into his life. Why? To bring about his life to be a better life. And you're going, man, I don't want to go through that. You might, maybe the right way to deal with this is to say, God, you're God, and I'm not. See, God will bring discipline in our lives to bring about a greater purpose. And healthy churches and healthy Christians understand and have come to the place where they go, it's not about me. I don't know why this is happening in my life, but it's something that God's trying to do through this moment to bring about something better in our lives. A.W. Pink, the old classic theologian, said this, the trial was not as severe as it could have been. It was not as severe as I deserved And my Savior suffered far worse for me. See, when godly discipline comes, we're reminded God's still at work in our lives to perfect us. I don't know about you, but I hadn't arrived yet. God's still working, right? And he uses discipline to correct us. And then he does this in this passage. He he tells us, I think, essentially this important truth. God disciplines us, why? Not to harm us, but to what? Bring about good. Now, I I started thinking about the different ways that this could be applied, and I kind of stopped it a little bit because I I knew I had to watch my time. But let me give you three quick thoughts here of why God does this discipline in our lives. The first one, I think, is this. God brings discipline in our lives to show us the ugly, disgusting, terrible consequences of our sin. You know, we sometimes think, oh, it's just a little sin. It wasn't a big deal. No big deal. It's just a sin. Oh, it was just a sin. I, I, I know it was wrong and I shouldn't have done it. But, you know, God's okay with it. It's all right. Hang on. Think about the story of David and Bathsheba. Now you're going, oh, you went to the big one. Yeah, let's go to the big one for a second. You remember what happened there? David committed adultery. Anybody in favor of that? Say aye. Of course not. We're not going to do that because we know that's wrong, right? Okay, easy. So what was the consequences of that sin? Were there consequences? Oh, my goodness. There wasn't just an immediate consequence. There was an ongoing consequence. The child, what? Didn't live. Uh, Bathsheba's husband didn't live either because of the choices made. But then it goes on through the rest of David's life. There was incident after incident in his family that was attributed directly to his choice that night. God disciplined him to show him the consequence of his sin. To bring about something. But how about this one? God, God's discipline helps shift our attention away from this life to the eternal. I don't know about you, but I, I find myself day after day getting so focused on the things here and now that I don't really think about the big. Do you? You don't think about what God has for us eternal. You know, we come to a funeral and we have to kind of force ourselves to think about death and the end of life and what could happen and all that kind of stuff. But most of the time we just kind of ignore it and go on. Every single one of us focus on the here and now. The truth is our bodies are wearing out. The truth is the day is coming that every one of us is going to what? Pass away. 
Are we ready? Is God perfecting us? He brings discipline to perfect us because he does it for a short time because honestly, our lives are what? Short time. And they'll be over soon. How about one more thought here? That he does this discipline not to harm us but for our good. God's discipline has the goal of what? Developing spiritual fruit. Why does God discipline us? He wants us to grow in Christ. He wants us to become more mature in our faith, to become grown up and mature in Christ. If you've ever worked with fruit, fruit trees, and I've got, I've got an apple tree I planted a couple of years ago and it hadn't yet flowered, or, well, it did flower once. It flowered one flower once and has yet to put out a, tr- a fruit of any kind. It may not be old enough yet as part of it. But what do you have to do with that tree from time to time if you want fruit trees and other things to grow? You've got to prune them sometimes, don't you? That's what God does in discipline. He comes into your life and my life and says, I'm going to prune some things. We're going to clean out this trash over here. We're going to clean out this junk over here. We're going to get rid of this mess over here, and we're going to correct this. God does it not to hurt us. So all discipline is not pleasant, but God does it to bring about the best in our lives. And here's my thought. A well-pruned Christian is a healthy Christian because God's at work. Sometimes we just need to be pruned. And God's discipline does that. So God's discipline reveals our father-son relationship. It reminds us that God's at work. And then third, it results in our growing righteousness. Look at verse 11. For the moment, for the moment, or you might say in the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it what? It yields, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I could tell you another story about me having to bend over in the principal's office multiple times. We won't go there. But those events were there to what? To hurt me? No, to remind me that I need to adjust my actions. Discipline comes in our lives. Why? It's painful in the moment, but it has a a produce that comes out of it in the end. At the end of this verse, I think, is the key to what happens in the life of a healthy follower and therefore a healthy church. Now get this. Go back to the passage. He says, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been, underline that word trained, because that's the key word here. And we think trained. Okay. We've got to train a dog, right? You've got to train your kids. Not the same training, but, you know, the same idea. We've got to train our kids. We've got to train a husband, ladies, right? Guys, we don't try to train our wives because we know it's not possible. But, but training, okay, it's, it's part of it. But I want to give you a little description of what that word means uh, in the Greek, what the background. The, the Greek word that's translated trained here is an interesting little word. It's the word that we get gymnasium from. Isn't that interesting? Gymnasium. Now, Aren't you glad we don't live in ancient Roman and Greek times? Because the way they trained is what the word means. The word literally means, I love when they go to literal, because if you translated the Bible literally sometimes, you'd sit there and go, "Uh uh-uh, because it means this, who've been stripped naked. And you're going, what? In ancient Roman times, they would actually go to the gym and they would, y'all get this, strip naked. 
You're going, uh-uh, not me. I'm not going to Planet Fitness and going, no, no way. Yeah, me either, okay? But what they would do is they would do that because they didn't uh, have workout clothes, one, and they would work out in the bus. And that wasn't just for convenience sake. You know, if you don't get gym clothes sweaty, you don't have to wash them, right? And if you don't have a washing machine, it's a lot of work to wash. That's part of it. But the other side of it was this. They would do that, and you're kind of going, why is he going down this road? Because I think it has a point where we grasp. They would do that so that their trainers could look at their bodies, not in a sexual way, but, but in a way that says, you've got some muscle tone problems here. You've got some issues here. Let's work on these areas to make you stronger. And so the idea that it comes back in, so Paul brought this Greek word in here with a very interesting meaning, is it was because their trainer would help them to tone their bodies, to train them. It later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been laid bare before the Lord is the idea. That we've been letting the Lord work in our lives in a way that changes us. You know, you can get all the gym memberships you want. You can have all the personal trainers you want, have all the best clothes to work out in. But if you don't actually go to the gym, what happens? You don't get much training, do you? That's the idea I want you to see. Healthy churches understand trials come not to destroy us so that we can be, but so we can be torn down and built up in His image. They say, we're not going to let it kill us. We're going to respond to trials by saying, look, look what God's doing in us. Look how God's at work in us. You know, when you go through a trial in life, sometimes you think, this is all bad. It's terrible. God can't be in the midst of this. Maybe the better way and the healthy way to look at it is say, look what God is doing through this. Three thoughts I want you to see and I'll wrap it up. I'll wrap it up. First of all, we have to always face trials with faith. Let's, be fa- let's just be honest. All of us face trials, don't we? All of us face hardships. All of us face difficulties. All of us face seasons that are just going, oh, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I mean, it's just, it's part of life. You know, we have, we have deaths in our family. We have cancer issues. We have health issues. We have this issue. We have that issue. We got personal conflict issues. Welcome to, to humanity, right? We all deal with it. Someone has once said that we're either in a trial, have come out of a trial, or we're headed back into a trial. It's just part of who we are. But how we face those trials, friends, is up to us. How we respond to the hardships is up to us. As a Christ follower, I can become angry. I can become despondent. I can get upset. I can cry and whine and complain. I can attack. I can tear down. I can do this. I can do that. Or I can choose the peace pathway of Jesus. And get this. You're the only one who gets to choose how you respond. We love to say, well, it was so-and-so's fault. It was their fault. It was his fault. It was their fault. How you respond is on you. Too harsh? I hope not, because I think it's helpful to hear that. I need to hear that sometimes, to remind me that how I respond to the hardships is up to me. Healthy churches respond to trials by saying this, we're going to walk the path of faith. We're not going to go into bitterness. We're not going to go into animosity. We're not going to get in the blame game. We're not going to tear each other down. We're not going to find someone to be our scapegoat. We're going to say, God, what are you doing with us in this moment? 
James's challenge to the people to whom he wrote, they were facing some serious trials. Some of them had lost their jobs. Some of them had to relocate. Some of them had lost their lives because of the struggles in the book of James. And James sits down and writes this crazy statement, one I have never understood yet. He says, "When it, here it is. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I, gotta, I, I think I prayed this earlier. God, have you lost your mind? James, are you nuts? The last thing on my mind when a trial comes, a hardship comes, is to go, God, thank you, it's wonderful. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, God, you're at work in me. See, I'm like most of you. I don't like conflict. I don't like pain. I don't like dealing with the uncomfortable. I don't like dealing with death and illness and sickness. And then you might say, well, you're in the wrong line of work, buddy. But you know what? The Jesus way says this, I'm going to face the trials in my life seeking the joy in the midst of it. So he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be what? Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Jesus way says, I'm going to let God work through this, even if it's painful, difficult, hard, not pleasant, not fun. But he's using it to draw me closer to him. Healthy churches don't complain much in the midst of trials. They choose to see it as God at work. Mm. And that starts with us as individuals. Because really, a church is a collection of individuals, and how we choose to respond individually affects how the body responds. Second, we need to believe something. We need to believe that God burns the dross, and you're going, oh my goodness, are we in uh, Elizabethan English here? Absolutely. That's a great old phrase, and I want you to see it, because I think it's something we have to understand. God is at work burning your dross, and you're going, I don't have any dross. Oh, yes, you do. I do, too. You see, when we're born, we're born in sin. We live in sin. We will die in sin unless we commit our lives to Jesus, y'all. Y'all, I think that's theologically correct. We don't commit our lives to Jesus, y'all. We're in trouble, okay? Y'all with me? So when we ask God to forgive us of our sins, and he does, we think it's all done, right? It's not. We find ourselves locked in this battle of God wanting to burn away the dross in our life. And you're probably, some of you who are younger than me are going, I've never heard that phrase before in my life. What in the world does that mean? Some of you who are older than me are looking at me going, I don't know what that means. Okay, well, here it is. We need to believe that God can burn away the dross in our lives. What that means is simply this. He's working to remove from our lives the impurities and imperfections that each one of us struggle with. Every single one of us has, I think it's the writer of Hebrew says, is a, a sin uh, that so easily besets us. For some, it's gossip. For some, it's adultery. For some, uh, it's homosexuality. For some, it's um, uh, gossiping. For others, it's uh, obesity. For some, it's alcohol abuse. I mean, every one of us has got something that we struggle with or some things that we struggle with. And your struggle may not be my struggle and my struggle may not be your struggle, but it's something that we struggle with. And what God wants to do in our lives, if we'll let him and we get to participate in this process, is he wants to burn the dross. Now you're going, what does that mean? 
If you've ever read much of the King James, you've seen that phrase before. It goes back to the days of silver and goldsmiths. I don't know if you've ever seen silver or gold in its natural state. It ain't pretty. It's an old nasty rock. And the flecks and the pieces are embedded in the rock. And what they would do is they would take those rocks and superheat them so that the metal would become liquid and the rocks would float to the top and they would burn off the top or skim off the top called the dross and perfect it. Over in Proverbs, Solomon described it this way. He says, take away the dross from the silver and the smith, the silversmith, has material for a vessel. God wants to do that in our lives. He wants to burn away the old stuff, the nasty stuff, the disgusting stuff, the habits that we have, the sins that easily beset us, the things that take us away from His holiness and His perfection and make us more like Himself. Now, we're not inanimate objects. Well, most of us aren't, like metal. So we get to actively participate in the process. And that means this, we get to choose. Yes, God, I'm going to surrender this to you. I'm going to lay this habit down to you. I'm going to let this one go. Y'all may not realize this, but I struggle with the sin of gluttony. Oh, I can't believe that. Actually, that's an acceptable sin in Baptist churches because we have potluck dinners and it's okay. Amen. Amen. I heard an amen on that one. But it's interesting how we tend to tolerate gluttony, don't we? But, oh my goodness, become an alcoholic. We'll look our nose right down at you. Which one's worse? It's a battle I struggle every day. Man, I can sit down and go through a bag of potato chips in a hurry. Not good. Healthy churches are aware of those areas where God is working to, to purify us, to burn the dross away so that we become more involved in His. That doesn't mean we live in denial of our flaws, but we say, God, I've got, I'm short here. I have a deficiency here. Maybe I have to share with someone else this confession that says, hey, I'm struggling with this area. Will you walk with me on this and help me through it? Help me allow God to burn the dross. One more thought and I'm done. Then we have to make a choice to what? To follow God's will. So God will follow you. Let me be very clear on this point. Spiritual discipline is rarely enjoyable and it's not something we often call fun. But it's something that God uses to bring about the best in us. I'm reminded of the scene at the Garden of Gethsemane. We talked about it earlier in the service. Remember Jesus went ahead alone to pray and Jesus does something that's kind of, kind of shocking when you stop to think about it. He prays to the, to the Father and says, Father, if you're willing, if you're willing, can I just skip this? I don't want to go. He says, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But then he goes on and prays this. Nevertheless, you know this? Not my will, but yours be done. I think what he was doing here was modeling for us how to face the trials. We've got to seek God's will in his circumstance that we face. And we, instead of trying to handle it ourselves, we say, God, I can't, but you can. I love when I hear someone say, I kind of come to the point where I can't, I figure out I can't handle this. And I go, yay. Spiritually, that's the right answer. I can't handle it on my own. I need God's Holy Spirit. I love that we sang about the Holy Spirit this morning. Holy Spirit to move in my life, to guide me and to correct me and to convict me and to kind of knock me around sometimes. Maybe take me to court and say, you're going to lose your driver's license. You say, the Holy Spirit did that? 
Not specifically, but in general, yeah. He used the government to correct me. See, we were, we've been raised in this culture of self-centered selfishness that says, I can do it myself, I don't need anybody else. But I'm convinced, my friends, that the Jesus way says this, I'm going to face discipline and I want to seek His will, not my will. You know, we can figure out a way to do it. I don't want to figure out a way, do you? I want to figure out His way for us. God is totally sovereign. He knows everything that's going to happen, but you know what? He gives us the freedom to say, yeah, I'm going to go or not. He doesn't force us to follow. He says, follow me. And the first step, as you know, is this. You've got to confess Jesus as Lord. And that's followed by a day-by-day surrender to Him. Those of you who've been following Jesus for years, when was the last time you surrendered to Him again? Where you say, God, I can't, but you can. I'm not in charge, you are. I want your will, not mine. Maybe that's what God's speaking to many of us this morning. It's not we need to trust Christ for the first time, though we want to give you an opportunity to respond. The challenge for most of us is this. I need to renew that surrender today. I need to renew that surrender tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, every day, to say, God, not my will, but yours. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you thanking you for the opportunity to be in your house this day, to worship, to sing, to praise you. But Father, also to make a decision that says, not my will, but yours. God, that's not a decision we should reserve just for Sundays or just when the preacher talks about it. But every day. Because God, you are at work in us, bringing discipline in our lives to correct us to perfect us into your image. And Father, healthy churches get that. Healthy Christians get that. We don't run around complaining about the hardships, but Father, instead we say, look what God's doing in this moment. Lord, I pray for those who need to respond this morning in a a step of salvation, of faith, making a public commitment to you. But Father, for most of us, the prayer that we need to pray is something like this. God, I have been running my own life too long. I have been rejecting your discipline in my life too long. I've complained about your discipline too long. And I want to say this morning, God, I welcome you to work on me, to perfect me, to correct me. And as you show me what I need to do, I will follow you. In Jesus' name we pray.